think the kids actually have a couple of sheets. And so, let's open our Bible to Ezra chapter 3. We're talking about community. And I'm not talking about community in the sense of our city. I'm talking about something greater than that. I'm talking about our relationship in Christ with God and with one another. Remember we said the God we worship is a God who has eternally existed in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we are born again... We are made new creations and we are brought into life in Christ. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, Philip said, Father, he said, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, it would be sufficient for us in, in John 14. And Jesus said, Philip, how long have I been with you and do you not understand, do you not know? I and the Father are one. I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. And so there is the reality of us being in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we're in the Father, and the Father is in us, and there is that unity, that oneness. And this is what I'm talking about when I talk about community. Now today we're going we're gonna to look at, in the Old Testament, how God has, from the, the beginning shown us pictures, types, and shadows that speak of this reality of relationship in Him. And specifically today, we're going to talk about the cross, and we're going to talk about the church. What is the church? Is the church this building, or are we the church? We are the church. And so Jesus said, I will build my church, and He wasn't talking about a building, He was talking about people. I will build my people, and they will become this one, this unified community of believers in me. And so, here in Ezra chapter 3, we're going to look at the account of when the children of Israel came back from captivity, and they, they came back to reestablish, to rebuild the temple, and to reestablish the city of Jerusalem. And... In Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, let's just begin there. It says, When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. I want you to see that, church. The people gathered together as how many? As one man. Today, as those uh, children and, 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 and those adults sang in that choir... I, I didn't hear many voices, I heard one voice. I heard, I heard many people singing with one voice. And it says, they gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of the countries, they set the altar on its basis, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. And verse 6 says, From the first 
day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. What did they build before they built the temple? They built the altar. I mean, that first day, what they did is they built that altar and they began to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And so, the cross and the church are shown in type through the altar and the temple of God. So in the Old Testament, when God spoke of the altar and the temple, He had something greater in mind than just a physical altar and a physical building. He was showing us a picture. He was painting a picture for us so that we could understand the ultimate, the eternal purpose of God, that God's purpose before time began, through all eternity, God's purpose was to what? Was to establish a people. He was going to establish a house. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words. God said, where is the house you will build for me? Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? And God was saying, there's not a house you're going to build on this earth out of brick or mortar or rock that can contain me. I will build my own house. Yet God had his people build altars and build houses, painting a picture, revealing to us what his ultimate purpose was. Would be. And so, this is what we're going to talk about today because we cannot understand community unless we understand what the Lord God has eternally purposed through His cross in order that He might build His church. Amen? The building of the church never precedes the cross, just like the building of the temple never preceded the building of the altar. Look at Matthew 16, verse 18 and verse 21. Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Father, we just ask today, Lord, before we go any farther, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our minds, Lord, to your truth. Lord, not man's truth, not our opinions, but what your word declares, what truth declares to us, that we might, Lord, not through our natural understanding, but Lord, by a revelation from heaven, by a revelation of the Spirit, God, that we might begin to see the eternal purpose of God, Lord, in establishing a people, in building this community called the church, That through the church, through this community of believers, through this fellowship of God and man, one with another, Lord, that you will be eternally glorified. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. And everybody said, Amen. So we cannot understand God's eternal purpose in community apart from what? Apart from the cross. If you don't get the cross, you don't. You will not understand God's eternal purpose. And you won't understand what community really ultimately means. For the intention of God is for the cross to lead directly to the church. And what is the church? The church is this community of believers. It is the reality 
of us in Christ and Christ in us and, and that being brought into God himself. Just like Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For, for me and the Father are one. So let's talk about the altar and the temple. In the Old Testament, what did the altar and the temple represent? Well, the altar represents the cross. And the altar is a place of what? The altar was a place of sacrifice. But the altar was also a place of testimony. And so let's, let's see, what was the first recorded altar built in Scripture? Well, in, in Genesis 8.20, the first recorded altar, the first time it's recorded in Scripture that an altar was built to the Lord was when Noah came off of the ark onto dry land in the very first thing that Noah did, the scripture says, he built an altar to the Lord and he took the animals that God had planned for him to take for sacrifice. Remember he said, you take seven clean. You take seven of these types. Why? Because God said, you're going to sacrifice those on the altar and Noah built an altar. Before Noah built a city, before Noah built a house, before Noah did anything else, he sacrificed, he built an altar. In 1 Chronicles, let's turn there, it's just a few pages back from where you are in Ezra. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, let's go there. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Now this is where David sinned against the Lord and he numbered Israel. And God sent... In verse 14, let's read 1 Chronicles 21, 14. It says, So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and, and many, many, 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And he was destroying, as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented from the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now what's significant about that is that threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, was the place ultimately the temple would be built. There is no temple as of, of, as of yet. There is a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was not there with David. The tabernacle was somewhere else. And David had commanded this census to take place and the Lord judged him. And the Lord brought destruction, and David, he gave David a choice, and he says, you know, what's your choice, David? Gad told, he said, what, what, what do you want to choose? He said, you want to suffer at the hands of your enemies? He said, no, he said, let me suffer. He said, let God judge me, because I trust in the mercy of God. I trust in God's mercies, but I don't trust my enemies. And so the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, and David lifted his eyes, verse 16, and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. David said, God, don't judge the people. He said, judge me. I'm the one that sinned. Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Do you see that that is a type of Christ? You... you David was a man after God's own heart. Do you see Christ in what David just said? David says, God, don't judge the people. Judge me. Let the judgment fall on me. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took our judgment that was rightfully ours. He took it upon himself. 
And it says in verse 18, Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad, the prophet, to say to David, that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and, and his sons hid, but Ornan continued doing what he was doing, threshing wheat. And David came and he says, I want to buy this threshing floor from you. And Ornan says, I'll give it to you. And I'll give you the oxen, and I'll give you the plows, I'll give you everything. And David said, nope. He said, I, I won't take it. He said, I'm not going to offer anything up to my God that does not cost me. Whew. Did you guys catch that? David said, I'm not going to offer anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me. I wonder today if we're trying to get off with a cheap sacrifice to God. David understood something here. He said, I'm not going to offer anything that doesn't cost me. And so ultimately, David built this altar and he sacrificed. The very site that David built that altar was ultimately the site where the temple would be built. Do you see what was built before the house was built? There was an altar built before the house was built. What does the altar represent? The altar represents the cross. And there will always be an altar built before the house is built. There is always going to be the cross before the church. Always. Hebrews 3.13.10 says, We have an altar. And the writer of Hebrews goes on in that verse. He says, We have an altar which those who minister in the tabernacle, it's not lawful for them to eat from. In other words, it, it causes me to think about what Jesus said in John 6 when he says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And who has the right to eat from that altar? It is those that have become the sons of God. Those that have been born again. The cross is our altar. And so the altar was established when? Before the house. And if the altar represents the cross, that means that the cross secures a way before what? Before the church. Before there can be a church, there must be a cross. Before we can be born again, there must be a death. Before we can be raised in life, there must first be a crucifying of the old life. And so the cross is our altar of testimony. The cross is our altar of testimony. Remember, a cross, an altar was a place of sacrifice, but it was also a place of testimony of our faith. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they overcame, talking about Satan, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Do you realize, church, that without the cross we have no community? There is no church. But without the cross we have no testimony. There is no word of testimony apart from the cross. I mean, I'm thankful for all of the things that God does in my life every day. And I'm telling you what, if you want to see miracles, look around you every day. Life is a miracle. But I'm telling you what, the word of testimony that we have, the greatest testimony is not just what God does in my life every day. The greatest testimony I have, the most powerful testimony I have, it's the word of testimony that was established at the cross. Without the cross, we don't have a testimony. It doesn't matter how good our lives may look, how wonderful they may be. If we do not have the cross, we have no testimony. Because it was at the cross 
that God made an end of transgression. It was at the cross that death ultimately was defeated. That's what Hebrews 2.14 speaks of. So the altar represents the cross. And the cross is our altar of testimony. So if the altar represents the cross, what do you think the temple represents? The temple represents the church. The house of God. Let's see what the scripture says in John 2, 19. Jesus coming out of the temple and he's got the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the scribes are all around him and he makes this statement. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, you're crazy. It took over 40 years to build this structure. How are you going to tear it down and raise it up in three days? Verse 21 says he was speaking of the temple of his body. 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? God spoke in the Old Testament, and he spoke of a place that he would cause his name to dwell forever. Long before the city of Jerusalem was ever established, in the book of Leviticus, when Moses was writing the law, and God was recording the law to Moses there, he was dictating it to him, and he spoke of the feast And he said, there is a place that I will cause my name to dwell forever. And you will command every man to appear before me three times a year in the place that I have chosen for my name to dwell forever. That they would come to Mount Zion, to the city of Jerusalem. God has chosen the holy temple called his church to be the place that his name will dwell forever. The temple represents the church. The tabernacle and the later temple, the house of God, represented the dwelling place of God on earth. That Ark of the Covenant was placed in the most holy of holies behind the veil. And only once a year was the high priest allowed to go into the presence where the Ark of the Covenant was. Where the presence of the Lord dwelt between the mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim there. And what did that represent? Did did God really, was God really wanting to dwell eternally in a gold box? Above a gold box? Hovering above a gold box? Is that really where God wants to dwell eternally? Or was God trying to show us something? Why was it called the mercy seat? Why did God dwell at the mercy seat? Because it's by His mercy It's by His grace that today we have become that eternal dwelling place. That we are the place in which He has chosen for His name to dwell forever. Did you or I earn that? Did you or I work for that? No. It was by His grace that He saved us. And so the temple represents the church. Ephesians 2.20 says, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now you think back to what Jesus said in Matthew 6.18, on this rock. On what rock? On Peter? No. On the revelation that Peter received from where? Not from man, but from, his, from the Father in heaven. He received the revelation of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, 
You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are no longer Simon, but you are Peter. You're a rock. And upon this rock of revelation that you receive from my Father in heaven, upon the reality that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Church, do you realize that is one of the greatest promises, if not the greatest promise that God has given to the church? He has promised us certain victory. See, the enemy wants to draw our attention away and get us looking at everything under the sun and make us forget what Jesus declared right there. That he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you realize where we were held? What we were held behind before Jesus went to that cross? Do you realize that we were held captive by the gates of hell? Every human being was, was trapped, was held prisoner by sin and death. And it was the deception of the evil one that brought that sin and that death to man. And Jesus said, those gates, they cannot prevail against this revelation of who I am. They cannot stop the building of the church. They cannot stop the establishment of relationship and community of restoration with God and living in the reality of that truth and in that community of coming back into fellowship with God that man would no longer be eternally separated from God but now through Jesus Christ God has opened a way and if you will by faith walk through that door that God has opened you too can come and be brought into this community into this relationship. And we, so we see that the temple is built upon the ground of the altar. That threshing floor of Ornan ultimately became the place where the temple was built. But the first thing that was built there was an altar. And we see that the church is built upon the ground of the cross. And it cannot be established any other way. Regardless of what the culture tells you, we do not all worship the same God. Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, we're all worshiping the same God. Can't we just all get along together? Well, I'm all for getting along together, but I'm also for letting everybody know what the truth is. We can all get along together, but we don't all worship the same God. Amen. There's only one God, and there's only one way, and that way is the cross. And without the cross, there is no way for the church to be established. No way. So the church is possible only through the cross. Not because of the cross, but through the cross. You know how you become the church? How do you become part of this community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christ? You don't, you don't do it because of the cross, you do it through the cross. Unless you go through the cross, which requires what? That I must lose my life in order to find the life of Christ. Through the cross, the church is possible, and only through the cross. So the cross becomes, it is, the basis of the church. I want to read something to you. The cross is the foundation and the basis of the church. The cross of the Lord Jesus in the mind of God 
is intended to lead directly to the church. And unless it does, that there will be, unless it does that, there will be progress only within certain and very limited dimensions. This is why the writer of Hebrews talks about going on. He said, we don't need to lay these foundational principles again. These elementary things, he said, we need to go on. You guys need to get a revelation that, that, that goes to the eternal purpose of God. It's not other than the cross, it's in the cross. We can't say, well, we've, we've, yeah, I know all about the cross, let's move on to something else, Pastor Jeff. I, I, I've heard about the cross, I don't need to hear about that anymore. No, you need to hear some more about it. Because you can't move on from the cross. You cannot ever move beyond the cross because the cross is central to everything. You can move deeper, but you can't move beyond it. You can't go past it. It's not something that's, that's in a line of things we're supposed to learn. Okay, got the cross, check that off my list. Let's move on to something deeper. No, there is nothing deeper than the cross. There is one work that's been done in all of history, in all of creation. It is the work of the cross. It's the only work that God recognizes. And so unless we get this revelation, this understanding of what the cross is all about, we are only going to make progress within certain and very limited dimensions. There will be a constrained spiritual life and a service to the Lord which is lacking in the greater fullness of divine meaning and intention. Let me translate that to you in modern English. To put it plainly, if we do not grasp the fullness of the cross, the result will be shallow, self-centered, and less than glorifying spiritual lives. Shallow, self-centered, and less than glorifying. If we don't grasp, if we don't grasp the true eternal purpose of the cross. See, we can all talk about living together and living in unity and harmony. But unless I understand what God accomplished through the cross, I can't, I can't do that. I can't in my natural mind. I can try to do it through the human will and through human intellect. But just look at world history, people, and let's see where that's gotten us. Hadn't gotten us very far, is it? Does it? We might do it for a day, a week, a month. We might even do it for several decades. But ultimately, in our humanness, there is not going to be unity and love and peace and harmony. Why? Because we are fallen creatures unless we're born again. And once we're born again and we've been brought into real community... And we begin to understand what true love is. What peace that passes understanding is. It's more than just having peace in the midst of my circumstance here. I'm telling you what. The peace that passes understanding is the reality that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. That there is nothing of this created order that can disrupt God's love for me and God's intention for me. That he will build his church. And the gates of hell, they will not prevail they won't do it they cannot do it because the victory that jesus has won is eternal and it is final it's done it's complete and so we need to grasp the fullness of the cross and if we're going to come into the full meaning of the cross now listen closely don't misunderstand i want you to listen to me closely if we're going to grasp the full meaning of the cross, it's going to be something more than the forgiveness of my sins. Listen to me. 
It's going to be something more than the justification I have by faith. It's going to be something more than me possessing eternal life. It's going to be something more than my deliverance from Satan and hell. It's going to be something more than my entitlement to heaven. If I'm going to grasp the full meaning of the cross, it's going to be something more than these things. Why? Because in coming into God's thought concerning the cross, we have to come to something beyond those things that affect just me, and I've got to see a greater revelation. What is that revelation? It is the revelation of the church. Now here's the thing. Listen. Think about this. Forgiveness, justification, eternal life, deliverance, healing, heaven. Those are all things that can become or, or can be measured in terms to how they relate to me. I mean, I'm telling you right now, I am thankful that I am forgiven. I am thankful that I'm justified by faith. I am thankful that I am delivered from Satan and from hell. I am thankful that I have eternal life and I am going to spend eternity with God in heaven. I'm thankful. But see, those things in and of themselves can become things that I totally relate my salvation and what this cross means can become totally about me and how it affects me. But I want you to listen. If I have God's revelation of the church and the body, the body and the community of believers who are one in Christ, if I get that revelation of the church, I can never truly measure that in terms of how it relates to self. It is by nature, it, it requires that I consider others. Because salvation is, I wasn't brought into salvation alone. I was brought into salvation to be part of a whole. And if my salvation experience, if I only understanding it in terms of what that cross has done for me personally, then I can lose sight of the greater purpose and reality of what God brought salvation for. Are you tracking with me, church? And so, by the very nature of what God has done through the cross... In establishing the church, it requires that we consider something outside of ourselves, that we consider others. It's why the writer of Hebrews says, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So, the cross, what does the cross do? Remember, why was the altar always built before the house? Because the altar represented the cross. And what did they do on that altar? They sacrificed. What did Paul say in Romans 12? Present yourself a living sacrifice. Now we talked about that in the, in the men's conference very briefly. For you men that were here. But listen. Who is the only living sacrifice? What is a living sacrifice? It's not you. It's not me. Who is the living sacrifice today? What sacrifice was alter, offered on an altar that is still alive today? His name is Jesus. Present yourself a living sacrifice. In other words, bring yourself and present yourself to God in Christ. Because the only way that I'm acceptable to God is because I have been brought into the living sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Don't be conformed to this world. In other words, stop thinking with worldly thoughts. Stop thinking from the tree that you were forbidden to eat from. Stop thinking from the knowledge of good and evil and begin to see yourself as a partaker of life. 
Stop that worldly thinking and be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And out of a renewed mind, you'll begin to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 2 and 3. And so, the cross crucifies self. It gets me out of the way and it clears the way for God's purpose and God's intention, which is the church. And the church is the many made one where? Where are the many made one? In Christ. Ephesians 4. Who is the, Ephesians 2. Who is the one new man? The two have become one and now there is how many new men? One new man. How did the children of Israel come back to Jerusalem from captivity? They came as one man. Why do you think God put that in there? Because there again he is showing us what he desires to accomplish in Jesus Christ, that we become one man in Christ. That means that I have to have, whose mind am I supposed to have? Christ. Am I supposed to have your mind? Are you supposed to have my mind? No, we're not to have one another's mind. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ. If we all have the mind of Christ, how many minds do we have? One. I mean, we can all get together and we can say section one, section two, and section three. You guys all get together and, and, and find out whose mind you're going to come into oneness with. And Well, we can have three minds, but we don't want three minds, do we? We want one mind. So if there's only one head, right? And if there's one head, how many minds are there in that head? There's one mind. And so the many are brought into the one body and they are to have one mind. And that is the mind of Christ. That is what it means to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, get the mind of Christ. Come into the oneness that God has brought you into through Jesus Christ. And so the church must follow the cross if we are in right oneness with the mind and the purpose of God. Did you hear me? The cross must follow the church. The, the church must follow the cross if we're going to come into the right oneness in the mind of Christ. The church cannot exist apart from it. Can there be community? Can we be in oneness unless there is a cross? And what does that cross do? It, I lose myself there. I lose my life, and whose life am I given? The life of Christ. Remember, the cross forgives our sins, but it's through the resurrection that we have life. And when I'm raised as a result of my crucifixion, whose life am I raised in? Am I raised in a new life that's mine? How many lives are there? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you understand why Jesus didn't say, I am a life? He said, I'm the life. Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill your natural body. Why do you think he said that? He said, because the cessation of this thing right here, the flesh, no longer living and breathing oxygen, he said, that's not death. What is death, church? It's separation from God. That's what death is. What happened to Adam? Adam became separated from God when he sinned. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to breach the separation to bring us back into community into relationship with God. 
Is that possible apart from the cross? It is not. Why was the altar always built before the house? Because the church cannot come into existence unless the cross come first. So we can't understand community if we don't begin to understand what God accomplished through the cross. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author, the beginner, and the perfecter of our faith. Who began your faith? Jesus did. Who perfected and finished your faith? Jesus does. Without Jesus, you can't have any faith. What are you going to put faith in apart from Jesus? Who for the joy, look at this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand. What was the joy that Jesus saw? What was the object that Jesus saw as he hung on that cross? What was the object that God had in mind when he created man? It was the church. It was the people of God. Why did God, for no apparent reason, choose Israel to be the chosen people? Did they deserve it? Were they better than every other people on earth? Nope. You know why he chose them? It was grace. It was grace. You say, no, Pastor Jeff, it was because Abraham had faith. Yeah, but, but why did God choose to speak to Abraham? He could have spoken to anybody. It's grace. And you begin to understand that we have what we have by his grace. Amen? And because he has brought us into that reality, because I now have life in Christ, what should my life manifest? Myself? Certainly not, because the cross took care of self. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I. It's not myself who lives, but Christ lives in me. Does Christ live in you this morning? If Christ lives in you this morning, then is the life of Christ being manifest through your life? That's the question. And if Christ lives in you, and you live in Christ, and you've been brought into Him, do you see the reality that you are now a part of the community of Father, Son, in Holy Spirit. That the very prayer of Jesus in John 17 was that we would be one even as we are one, Father. That's what Jesus prayed. I pray for them, Father, that they would be one even as we are one. Do we live with that reality and that understanding that that is what it means to be the church? That is what the church is. This thing called church is not all about you and I how it makes us feel, whether it scratches every itch that we have. It is about bringing glory to the Lord God Almighty. It is about magnifying Him in this earth. It is about showing that there is a body. There is one man. His name is Jesus. And we are the expression of that one new man. Not because we earned it, not because we fought and worked real hard to get in there, but because by His grace He made a way at the cross that all of my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. But will I by faith 
reckon myself dead to sin and alive to God. And if I have become alive to God in Jesus Christ, if I now possess His life and He is my very life, then why would not that life be manifest through me? Why would not His love be manifest through me? Why would not His peace and His joy and His faithfulness and His gentleness and His kindness and His humility and His self-control, why would that not be manifest through me? Because if I am a branch connected to the true vine, then the fruit's going to come. How do we know, Pastor Jeff? Because Jesus said so. He said... A good tree will produce fruit. And a bad tree will produce bad fruit. And no good fruit can come from a bad tree. And no bad fruit can come from a good tree. My father is the vine dresser. And he will make you fruitful. Because by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And if you're not prepared for that, don't you... Don't you go to that cross and reckon yourself dead. If you're not ready to lay your life down, if you're not ready for the I, for the me, to be crucified, then stay right where you are. If you want to keep living your own life, doing your own thing, making your own decisions, figuring out life based on how you feel and what you want and what your desires are, then you just stay right where you are. But if you are prepared to understand that from beginning to end, God has painted a picture for us. That the altar represents our death. And that the house is what God wants to build. But it requires an altar first. There is a church Jesus has promised to build, but it shall only be built through the cross. And if you are to be one of those living stones that Peter talks about, being built up into a holy habitation in the Spirit for God. If you're going to be one of those, you're not going to become that apart from that cross. You're not going to do that by trying to hang on to your own life. You're not going to do that by thinking that you're okay because you have Jesus with you, but you're still going to do what you want, what you feel, what you desire. You can't do that. You say, are you saying, Pastor Jeff, that, that God just wants to bring an end to me? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. He wants you to cease to exist and he wants the life of his son to become your life. And he wants you to find the fullness of joy where? In his son. He wants you to find a peace that passes understanding in his perfect will, not yours. He wants us to come into the oneness that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in eternally he wants to bring us into that community and he wants us to live in the joy and the peace and the fullness of that that's what it means to be the church it, it's me ceasing and it's him arising it's me decreasing that he may increase it's no longer i but it's christ That was the joy that was set before Jesus. That's what enabled him to endure the suffering and the shame of the cross. Because his purpose 
before he invented man, before he put the first star in the universe, his purpose was to establish the church, to establish the community of believers. And it's in that community, it's in that entity called the church, it's in that called out group of people that God has purpose to glorify himself. We bring glory to God. It's not about us, it's about him. It's not about our glory, it's about his glory. It's not about our pleasure, it's about his pleasure. He wills and he works according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13 says. In giving himself, Christ held an object in view. And the Lord saw through the cross a great heavenly object. And that object is the church. It is the church. And the church is the community of believers. But it's not just us. We are one in Him. Amen? That is not possible apart from the cross. So let us rightly divide the word of truth. Let us begin to comprehend, not with our natural minds, but let's get a revelation from heaven of what it means to be the church and what the cross has accomplished for us. We're going to talk more about this next week. Because until we get this revelation, until the church comes into this revelation, everything you do in Christianity, in your life of faith, it's going to be centered around you. And it cannot be. We are not here for ourselves. We're here for His glory. And God desires to move through one body, the body of Christ. He desires to manifest His life and His power and His glory through one body, and that is the body of Christ. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to have one mind. Have you ever met someone that has multiple personality disorder? I have. Dealt with them. Known them intimately. It's hard to get anything done sometimes because they don't have just one mind. they got a bunch of minds. They might have two, they might have three. It's demonic. You know why it's demonic? Because God never intended us to have more than one mind. God intended us to have one mind. And he made a way for us to even get delivered from our own mind and have the mind of his son, the mind of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Is there anyone here that does...